Hi, welcome to the Plants and Pipettes podcast. Um, the hundredth episode, the third time. Yeah. Like, facts 50 to 75 is, I think, what we should be doing today. Something around there, yeah. Yeah. I mean, we probably, like, I hope nobody counts along at home because we might be wrong. It's, it's fine. It's fine. I think. Yeah. No one cares that much, right? Yeah. Nobody's that invested. Um, today's a very exciting episode also because we are in person somehow. I mean, not for you guys. You guys are probably listening on your iPhone, but your, I can see Yoram's face right now, not through a screen. It's very exciting. Yeah. I could touch it if I wanted to, but yeah, I, consent would be required. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. it's And also we're recording at the time of day where we usually don't record. Usually, the sun is out. It's confusing. Yeah. I don't, yeah. So <laughs> forgive us if we sound a little bit like weirder today because yeah, usually... Back, um, back when this all started, episode one, we were always in the room together and we were always in this room together, in fact. Like I would mm -hmm. come to your house and like Yoram's a pro with the recording stuff and yeah, that's how it began. Yeah, true. Like most, it's only, but now I think it's for, I think we must be even now with like remote recording and in-person recording, but definitely for like the first 30 to 50 episodes or something Yeah, that was in person. And then one of us refused to move to London, which was frankly strange. Yeah, I'm still sorry for that. Um, but also, yeah, I, it's on me. It's my fault for not it moving to London. <laughs> you should have uprooted your entire family to follow me to London <laughs> for a podcast. Yeah, just to make it easier to record. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think let's just jump in, right? Do facts, facts, facts. Should I give you a word and you tell me something about it? I did quite enjoy that as a... Yeah, then um, I have something. Let's start with food because it's lunchtime. Let's start with food. Um, I have something that's for food, but it's not really human food. Mm -hmm. I think I burned all my human food facts on the first episode. Um, so my my question for you, Yoram, is do you know why young leaves are often red? So we know that like leaves often become red as they're older when we go into autumn, but sometimes the the sort of fresh sprouts from from trees that we see in spring, often they're really really bright green, but sometimes they can also be kind of a reddish color. Mm -hmm. I think I would imagine like when a leaf is forming, it has to make all of the photosynthesis photosynthesis apparatus, all of the machinery, and that's sensitive to light. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so I imagine like the red pigments, they are a sunscreen of sorts, like they make sure that the thing that they're trying to build is not being destroyed as they build it. Because when it's all there, it's stable. But until it's stable, it's quite sensitive. So that's absolutely true, but also has nothing to do with food. So <laughs> I'm going to need you to answer that again. That is actually one of the, the two sort of reasons why they can be read, um, or at least the two that I, I have found uh, easily. But it doesn't have anything to do with food, Yarm. So let's let's take one more shot at that. Um, then... <laughs> I mean, plants need, need need light for food. No. Um, they could eat chemicals. Is it food colder, for others? Colder, colder, <laughs> Is it is it so that when when insects eat the leaves, they eat like a bitter compound that they don't like and that protects the young leaves from being eaten? Yes, that also seems to be part of it. So this was just um, based on a study that I saw in one of an oak species. And they were looking at these two hypotheses. One was what you already said perfectly. It's protecting, it's a sunscreen to protect this photosynthetic apparatus, which takes a while to build. And if you put too much light in while you're building it, it 
sort of explodes and damages the, the leaves. So that's reason number one, can be a mild sunscreen. Um, and then the second reason was to prevent herbivores from eating the young mm-hmm. leaves. And I think that also makes sense because the young leaves, they often, they're a bit softer, they're tastier. Um, they maybe don't have like other things to defend themselves like physical structures but also the ability to easily produce lots of secondary extra thing like metabolites but they do have this kind of sunscreen that can also have um yeah like taste a bit not nice um and they also produce other sort of some other phenolic compounds and it's again something that tastes Mm -hmm. kind of bitter so there's sort of a a positive correlation with the anthocyanins it's the red pigment and other compounds and then that was linked to not being attacked so much by herbivores so mm-hmm. lack of tastiness so mm. okay kind of a food fact kind of a food fact not yeah really. but i didn't but i didn't know that like yeah i always thought it's just the color and not sort of the bitterness of the compound that plays a role yeah i think so um There's also this idea that the color itself can be sort of a signal, like an honest signal. So this is this discussion about autumn Mm -hmm. leaves, like they become red and it's like, why would a plant put energy into making something red before it drops the leaves? So like the the leaves become red and yellow partially because the chlorophyll goes away, they're less green, but they often also produce a ton of these like colored pigments. Like why would would they do that? They're just about to throw that leaf on the ground. And one of the, the arguments for that is that it's telling other like insects, hey, don't lay your eggs on me because I'm mm-hmm. about to be thrown on the ground, which is a win for the plant as well. It doesn't want to get infested at that stage. So there's also this idea of honest signaling. So maybe red is seen as a, a way to signal, hey, I'm not tasty. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I have something for food about tofu. I recently learned that you can make tofu from uh, algae. Um, Wait, what? From spirulina, because tofu essentially is curdled and pressed and cooked protein um, that you usually would extract from soybeans. But you can do a very similar process from spirulina, which is like the cyanobacteria. They're often called algae um, in like the broad sense of algae, but they're not eukaryotes. They're like little bacteria, but they also do photosynthesis. I've seen um, smoothies, like green smoothies. It's often green because it has spirulina in it. Yeah, it's a very f- popular food um, food stuff right now. Because humans need chlorophyll. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, all like, what is it like antioxidant, what they always tell us. Um, although like... Seems like the opposite. Yeah, it seems to be very sensitive to oxygen. But yeah, don't... Like anyway. don't, don't try to to enrich your health uh, your diet by just eating chlorophyll for your own good. Um, like it doesn't do any harm. But anyway, so what you can do with spirulina is that it's very high in protein, like between like fifty and seventy percent, depending on how you grow it and what strain it is. And then you can just add acid to it, curdle sort of the protein, let it uh, sediment to the to the bottom, and then press it and cook it. And then you can make a sort of greenish tofu. And I talked to a researcher who's. Um, for for work and they're doing like algae research they, they're growing spirulina in big tanks um for food and for sort of health benefits um uh, not health benefits directly but it's like food additives and um spirulina extract mm-hmm. as you said like in smoothies and often it's you a find good that. natural coloring i think it's a good way to get green without yeah 
that's actually another uh, another factor that you can get like a blue pigment from some of these spirulina algae that otherwise is really hard to get. Um, like we talked about this so often, how difficult blue is as yeah. a natural color. And um, from algae, you can get blue color. Uh, and then when you're done with making the tofu uh, with the tofu whey water, and I think here it's like conventional tofu from um, from soy plants, you can grow more algae on it. Um, I found one study where they were growing chlorella, which is another type of algae, on uh, tofu whey wastewater. So after you precipitated all of the proteins out of it, you still have sort of a nutrient solution that has all of the other things that mm -hmm. are not protein. And you can use that again to grow algae in it. And apparently that also works very well. Um, so it's, yeah, <laughs> you're doing it a I'm circle. I'm doing a circle of life, little dance Yeah, so in the you background. can grow algae, um, then make tofu out of it. And with the remaining water, you can grow more algae. So I need to know more about this, this, this tofu. Did you try the tofu? I didn't try it yet. Okay. I hope that I will eventually have the chance to do that. No, I just like talked to, to him about him, about it. And Would they call it tofu though? Because like to me, tofu is obviously soy and one of the things people don't like about tofu is that it is soy. It has kind of a soy flavor. And you can also have like seitan, which is also protein, but it's gluten protein, mm -hmm. right? So would this have a, a separate name, something? I don't know. I would ha have to come up with a good name. It doesn't have a good name yet. I mean, it's not a commercial product. Like they did it sort of in a lab scale. They, mm -hmm. they had like their spirulina culture and they were like, what can we do with this? And they figured something that they could do with it is just like extract a protein and make this tofu sort of a very simple protein preparation. Um, and they said it tasted nice. Like it's, but I guess it's so far it's only like the people in, in their lab. I'm just having a sudden tasted. thought back to being in the lab and doing isolation of nucleic acids. So like RNA or DNA from a sample of just like leaf material. And usually you do a clean step, a cleaning step where you sort of add something out to precipitate out the proteins. Mm -hmm. And you often get this kind of white, fuzzy, furry stuff. Mm -hmm. If we collected enough, okay. We also we also do that cleaning step in in phenol, which is very not good to eat. Yes. But assuming we collected the white fuzzy stuff, enough of the white fuzzy stuff, would that basically be tofu? I mean, theoretically, that's take all of the protein waste from your nucleic acid preps. Um, yeah, I mean, technically, I think yes. If you would just precipitate the proteins, maybe also simply with acid, um, and then you have denatured protein, and I think that's tofu. Denatured protein and I'm, I'm still objecting to the tofu. I think tofu <laughs> specifically is soya beans, and I don't like that. It's like plant yeah. protein, fine. Tofu, not okay with that as a name. So you're in the same camp tofu as the people who, who say you can't <laughs> call... It's not milk, it's milk. <laughs> exactly. It's not tofu, it's nofu. <laughs> oh my goodness, yeah, nofu. <laughs> yeah. Or something, I want something where it sort of tells me that it comes from an algae, not then. Well, I mean, really, like... Tofu has a bad rep. That's one of the problems of the vegetarian movement. It's that people don't like tofu. They don't like soya products because it has quite a strong. Yeah, but is it, I I heard from people they 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 don't trust soy based products because of like the the plant estrogens that are in there. Um, that to Again, my knowledge don't work reason, the same way. As, another reason why we shouldn't be calling it. We should be going with no food. Yeah. <laughs> Copyright. You have to give us five cents for every product sold under the name no food. <laughs> But so yeah, that's that's nofu from from algae. I have another kind of algae fact that can go mm -hmm. on from that. I mean, it's about a green algae, which is I can say the class. It's Trebuxio 
Fisea. Mm-hmm. That was terrible. And um, okay, we'll try again with the Latin names. Helicosporidium. Mm-hmm. And that's the genus. Um, and these are sort of famous, infamous, uh, because it's a parasite. It's a parasitic algae that okay. lives inside the gut of insects. And yeah, I, I'm also confused. Uh, but <laughs> it's eh, eh. Okay, um, but one of the, the cool thing about it is that because it's a parasite, can you guess what it's done genetically? I mean, it must have thrown out its photosynthetic machinery yeah. because I imagine it's, it's, it's quite dark in the gut. It's quite dark in the gut of um, the insects and it, yeah, and it has done exactly what your arm says. How is it an algae then? Like it's, it's then a eukaryote that doesn't have any photosynthetic well, machinery. Like genetically, like evolutionarily speaking, it's an algae that then mm. like it's still like its ancestors are algae, but it has now like just turfed out like a whole, like, yeah, as you said, so it's, it's sort of famous for having one of the smallest um, known plastid genomes. It's only 37 kilobytes, kilobases. So it's um, 37,000, mm-hmm. which as a comparison, uh, Arabidopsis is 154,000. So like five times bigger. Mm-hmm. So this is quite small. And yeah, it's, it's kind of weird because yeah, yeah, most most chloroplast or plastid genomes they they do have all these genes for making photosynthetic machinery and it just doesn't need them anymore, um, so it got rid of them. And I, I do like this generally. This is quite a common theme that we see in parasites where after a while genes that aren't used they get turfed out. And a lot of parasitic plants, you can kind of tell they're parasites because often they're not green. They've just not bothered to make like chlorophyll and photosynthetic machinery anymore. Um, and then at the like the genome level, you can also tell because they've just they just have all the they, they either have thrown out these photosynthetic genes or they they have ones which don't look right like maybe they they're too short or they mm-hmm. you know they they can't be made properly because they've got like problems that never got fixed because yeah the organism doesn't need it so yeah this is just cool this is um helicosporidium and he's just become a parasite and done what parasites do. <laughs> Respect. Did, yeah, I, I, I didn't know about parasitic algae. That's really cool. That's that's really good. I have another algae um, that could be the explanation for what Hans Christian Andersen was actually writing about. So maybe... The Little Mermaid? Exactly. Um, maybe eh? what he meant is not like a Little Mermaid creature, but actually an algae, um, according to some researchers at this least. This is a stretch. I've heard like dugongs, like these sea cows, manatee are... Yeah. It's also a story that I heard, but in this case, it's um, an algae called Acetabularia uh, yalacanyake, um, uh, found in the Andaman uh, Archipelago, 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 which is also it's Australian as well. It sounds awful. Archipelago. <laughs> Um, this is a part in uh, it's part of India, but it's actually geographically much closer to uh, Myanmar. It's sort of south of Myanmar, but politically it belongs to India. Uh, and there, researchers found this algae. Um, What's the name again? I'm going to Google it so I can. Aceta bularia yalakanyaki, um, and yala uh, yalakanyaka um, is Sanskrit, and that means goddess of the oceans or mermaid. And the researchers say that they were inspired by the Little Mermaid from um, Hans Christian Andersen's story. And if you did, you find the picture of it already? I think so. It looks like um, floating discs. Yeah, is that the one. Or it looks a bit like Pilea plants, um, these sort of money plants, but yeah. underwater. 
or a little bit like a, a small umbrella. Like it has a stem and then it has like this disc on top. Upside down mushroom. That's my like, yeah, because it's got these kind of um, striations, these like gills on the mm-hmm. top of it as well, right? And uh, the exciting thing about this is like this little structure, like a little umbrella with like the little sort of spokes on top um, is all a single cell. Like th- this, really? this algae has like one nucleus and I don't know if it's like compartmentalized, um, but it's it only has one nucleus. So it's considered only one cell, which makes it really interesting to study because there are a couple of species that are a single cell and sort of visible by eye but not that many. And so having a new one always is exciting. And that means that for as a model organism, this is a, a very interesting species. Yeah, I'm looking and people also liken it to nasturtium plants. So these, these round leaves of nasturtiums. This is really interesting. I'm, I'm not really sure how, I, how it's a mermaid, to be honest. I think it's the, they say it's like the umbrella of the little mermaid. Um, that's what it, they they gave uh, it a name for. Oh, here I have her wine glass, the mermaid's wine glass. Mm. That seems slightly yeah. more believable than men jumping off ships because they're sexually attracted to a small <laughs> sea mushroom. <laughs> effectively, they're seeing a sea, tiny mushroom and then like, oh yeah, there must be like. I a couldn't help bit. myself. I had to have her. <laughs> There's a little beautiful creature there um, that they wanted to date. Yes, they wanted to date her. <laughs> uh, these look really, really cool. Uh, I have just on a follow-up of plants that, um, of plants, w- what they eat, and you said something about um, throwing out the genes that they don't need. I have something where they gained a couple of functions um, in, a, in a weird way. Uh, and it's introduced by the fact that, did you know that um, carnivorous plants, they sort of, um, they separate the, pl- the parts where they have pollination happening and the plants where they have the eating happening. So their flowers and their traps, they're separated. I think you've mentioned this. They, yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. Make, it makes sense, right? Like they don't want to accidentally eat the pollinators. Like the pollinators are doing a job for them. Yeah. They don't want to eat them. Um, so most, most carnivorous plants um, that we know of, they separate these two places um but there is um the plant it's called a western false asphodel um that seems to do it differently um it's a plant that grows in like wetlands and it has a long um, stem leading up to the flowers and the stem is covered in like small sticky hairs and for a long time it was believed that this was only a defense mechanism mm-hmm. so it would only like little bugs and critters would just like stick to it and they could not eat the plant then but then they would die on the plant and that's it um, but now researchers have looked at the genome and there they found um, some genetic markers that are also found in carnivorous plants and then they did some experiments and they sort of labeled the nitrogen in some insects and put them on on this plant and they could see that the nitrogen from the insects is actually taken up so the plants are actively digesting these insects, um, which means that they have very closely to their flowers, they have traps. And to like they, their researchers then obviously also wondered, well, like, why are they doing this? Like, they don't want to eat the bees. And yeah, they don't do that or they, they separate that by um, adjusting their traps so that it mostly catches very small insects like very small Mm -hmm. flies um and bigger ones like moths or bees they can't be really uh, they don't stick 
to the hairs and so they're not digested. I'd still be kind of pissed off if I came to like pollinate something and I got <laughs> sticky feet. Like, just yeah. like, ugh, again, like, really, really, like... I have yeah. to wash my hands again. Like, it's like when you when you step in like a sticky spot on the floor. Yeah, just or just like, chewing Ugh. gum. It, it would be that chewing gum feeling where they're just like, oh, you guys, why? But I did, I actually, I saw this. This is really a recent discovery, right? Mm-hmm. And it's one of the first like carnivorous plants that has been discovered for, for years. We sort of th- thought we had an idea of what the carnivorous plants were. And they were like, oh, this, one, this one's yeah. doing it too. Like, and the, like some, some researchers say it's not really a carnivorous plant because they're not actively luring in the insects like most of them have sort of attractive traps that have a purpose of luring the insects in and then trapping them and then digesting them Um, this one doesn't like the stem is not particularly attractive it doesn't have any sort of coloring or smells or anything that they know of so far Um, so they think this is sort of they're having these sticky bits for self-defense but then instead of letting the nutrients in the insects go to waste they extrude some like um, phosphatases and some other Mm. enzymes that then digest the insect because if they already have the insect corpse attached to them why not also digest it this is a bit like the semantic argument of the evolutionary question of why i mean yeah any plant if it can get more like any any organism if it can get advantage for itself it does it right so Mm -hmm. it might not be it's, it's not chosen to do that it's not thought oh i see that insect over there that's probably a tasty meal it just happens gradually but yeah yeah they said it's like a, once you have sort of the sticky bit already as your defense, then it's only a small step to also make sure that the right enzymes are on the outside of your cells and mm. able to digest it. So you get like this nutrient solution that you then can take up. So it's yeah, evolutionary, not that much of a big step. Nutrient solution, also known as like the blood of dead bugs. <laughs> Insect nice, goo. <laughs> yeah, it's a good sale though. Yeah, it sounds much nicer this way. Have you got another word for me? Yeah, I'm just looking already what I, I could give you. Maybe, do you have something on medicine? I have something on medicine, which is a bit of a weird childhood thing for me. When I, there was some program that I watched, and I'm pretty sure it was Tom and Jerry, where if you were naughty, you got forced to drink castor oil. Mm-hmm. No, no? I, I know of like, um, in Germany, we call it Lebertran, which is like whale oil. Okay, from whales? Yeah, like from, from sperm whales. They used to make, like, they would, like, get oil from whales. And for a while, it was, like, an important resource for, like, candles and stuff. And also, like, it's a source of some vitamins or something. But it's supposed to taste disgusting and be very unpleasant to, to take. This seems, like, similar. So, so I have this thing in my mind where there's a cartoon child forcing castor oil down the throat of the cartoon cat, which is Tom from Tom and Jerry. And... It's like clearly stuck in my mind, probably because I watched that cartoon multiple times. I think my granddad had it. Um, but also because I, was, I didn't understand what was happening. I was like, what is castor oil? Why would you feed somebody oil? Like what is happening? And then I looked up what castor oil is for. And apparently it's to like fight against constipation, which also didn't make sense. Mm-hmm. It's like a laxative. It's like, why would you feed a cat a laxative? That seems like that's not a win for anyone involved. Like the cat's not enjoying itself. And like 12 hours later, you're not enjoying yourself. Like <laughs> it was it was very confusing. Anyway, I was looking up castor oil and yeah, so this, yeah, Yaram's like, uh-huh. Yeah. You yeah. know what it is. I now found a German word for it. Like the Rizinusöl is the German word for it. Yeah. And I know that, yeah, it was used for health benefits, but it's, now I know it for more of its dangers for your health than as a 
and beneficial that's thing. where we're going. So yeah, so this is castor oil, which has these kind of medicinal links, but the castor oil plant, it's called like castor oil bean, but it's not really a bean because beans are like fabaceae. It's like this, there's a bean family. Um, it's actually a um, euphorb, I think. Yeah, so like spurges, they're called in English, but euphorb. Um, and yeah, the, the name of the species is Racinus communis, and the Racinus is the clue there, which is that it's, it's where ricine comes from, mm. um, which is this very poisonous thing. And it's, people say that it's the most poisonous, the most deadly plant there is. If you eat maybe like five plus of the beans, you can die. Um, you get nausea, diarrhea, tachycardia, so your heart beating in the wrong way, um, seizures. This can last for a week or you can ultimately get killed. And I think the ricine, what it does is it prevents the proteins from being made properly. So this also means that you can sort of have it and then you can get these like immediate discomfort feelings, but you can also have this sort of delayed effect where, you know, after some days you die as your body stops being able to to make proteins. But it's quite weird because the, the ricine is found um, within these seeds which have the castor oil but ricin itself is not soluble in oil it's water soluble mm -hmm. so when you t extract the oil the ricin should not be in that oil part it will separate into you sort of can wash it out with um, water and also when they extract castor oil they then heat it above 60 degrees which sort of dis denatures the the ricin and, and inactivates it as well for for extra safety but theoretically there's or above 80 degrees i think but anyway there's theoretically all there's also this separate water soluble mm -hmm. ricine and then this oil mm -hmm. oily oily part but yeah i think it's it's still dangerous yeah five five plus five to twenty beans could be fatal to an adult um it is a bit also weird because if you just swallow the beans they will pass through you because they have this quite hard seed coating and probably that won't break down I mean, don't try this at home, obviously. Uh, probably that won't break down in your belly if you don't chew them. And also, like, some of the stomach acids can help, like, um, de inactivate the ricine as well. Uh, but if you chew them, like, the more you chew them, the more likely they are to be fatal because um, you're just, you know, opening up that and getting accessibility to that ricine. Um, yeah, quite quite fascinating. And I think it's, I think it's famous from... Walter White is that yeah, also, is that what he uses? I, I, I try to like looking on the site here. Try to find a reference to Breaking Bad because there he like he makes two poisons in in I think in the in the story. One is from like a white flower, um, and one is I think where in the end, um, spoiler alert, like he kills a lady I think with ricine that he makes. I remember him having it on a like the wrapper of a cigarette or something like that. I think like a sugar packet. Like she's always uh. drinking like sweetener in her coffee, and then he swaps out or like he puts rice in with the sweetener, and then she puts it in her coffee, and then she dies from that. I think like I also also thought of Breaking Bad when you when you. Uh, oh, he it says apparently he uses it twice. Yeah, I use rice in both cases. I thought he only like in the first one he had like a like he extracted something from a flower. <laughs> Like poisons used by Walter White, Wikipedia article. Yeah, so if you if you want to see what a castor bean looks like, watch all of um, Breaking Bad up until season two, in which case it will pop up, or use Google. Um. Yeah, um, yeah, Lily of the Valley. Um, there D he used different thing. That's a different thing that he also used, but he also used ricin. So he uses, um, so he killed sort of 
I mean, he killed so many people in the story, and he used many, like, apparently, also several different poisons. This one is rising. <laughs> <laughs> My fact was about rising. I um, think that was. I don't know if that was one fact or two facts, but yeah. Um, on speaking on medicine and things that are not beneficial for your health potentially um is maybe have you heard the story that um you can use the water inside a coconut as an intravenous solution Ew. that's like a, a myth that's been perpetuated from time to time there's a story that uh, during the vietnam or the um, uh, u.s troops they ran out of saline mm-hmm. uh, like sterile saline solution mm-hmm. um for transfusions and the story has it that they then would use coconuts instead okay because it's got already sort of salts and it's it's not like if you put water into your blood you're going to like burst your blood cells so the idea is it was, it's already got other solutes like salts and sugars yeah. in there so it's not going to like just cause you to explode internally and then i guess the other argument is that it's inside a coconut and therefore sterile before you yeah yeah okay exactly that it's like yeah within the plant it's it's sterile and then you have like sugars and salts in there and um apparently the, the myth is that it's a very similar um, set up to like blood plasma mm-hmm. but um, then I tried to find any sort of basis on that story and you only find like anecdotal evidence on the story that in during the war the doctors were using that um, there's like one paper where they used that in one case in sort of in an emergency situation and it worked mm-hmm. but there's no report that anywhere they used that like multiple times and um, it, it worked means not just that they got it into somebody's body but then like they survived through, and they were that fine didn't die yeah but there's other like other doctors that say it's not a good idea there's like too many other compounds in there as well that could cause complications so it's not sort of a, a healthy easy um uh, alternative to proper like saline bag it's um i do think that's the reason people are drinking coconut water as sort of like health water as an isotonic you know it's, mm-hmm. it's got minerals and nutrients and whatever all that stuff that we apparently <laughs> need especially if we survive otherwise on a diet high in chocolate it's like here this is <laughs> coconut water it's complete magnesium yeah. i don't know something something micronutrients yeah but no don't um don't use coconut water as an IV solution. Yeah, maybe don't put anything in, don't inject anything into your bloodstream yeah. is our general. In general, yes. But <laughs> but specifically <laughs> that, if you if you hear that somewhere and if you, somebody tells you the story about the doctors in Vietnam uh, during the war, just it's probably not Just cite your sources at them. And then yeah, just like, we couldn't find the source, so maybe they will do it for yeah. us. And then, <laughs> then let us know if I, it's really a thing. Yeah. <laughs> do you have something on nights? Knights? And like knights, fighting knights, or jousting, <laughs> or battle. This is these words are very obscure. Um, I actually do have something on knights. You know what? It's a bit of a it's a bit of a leap, but I'm going to go with knights. <laughs> Good. <laughs> so this was this was one of these things that is kind of a fact by itself, but it was also because I was doing that um, Alice in Wonderland rabbit holing through like different facts. So there was a fact that was related to seagrasses that came down to this fact so (laughs) i just don't know where to start because this is like the middle fact that doesn't link (laughs) but it does link to knights so we're staying here because it has like i don't i don't know why yoram thinks i would have like fighting knights as one of my so this is the species that is called dracu the dracu dracunculus dracunculus okay 
uh, vulgaris. Vulgaris, I think, is just common. Mm-hmm. Um, but the name is the Black Dragon. And I think that's as close to knights. Yeah. <laughs> that deserves some sort of round of applause. Um, that's very good. Please. Yeah, you can add that. I, w- I wanted something a little bit more high tech. Like Yoram has this full DJ setup with flashing dials and colors and knobs. Yeah, and what we get is like a manual clapping in the background. I don't have an applause button I w- because I never thought that we needed it. <laughs> Sometimes it's nice to be appreciated. So um, anyway, this is called uh, Black the Black Dragon. It's also called the Black Lily, Dragon Wart, Dragon Aram, Voodoo Lily, the Snake Lily. And you might have heard about these species before. So they're arums, which means they have this kind of, um, I don't even know how to explain it. It's a space. So it's like a sort of semi-conical, how, how do you explain what that looks like? It had like one big petal. I don't know if it's actually a petal, by, like botanically, but like one big leaf from the flower. And they have like a center sort of column um, that's in this case, like for this family, they're often spiky. Um, they, I guess they are the place where you actually find the, um, the, the stamen and the stigma and all of that, like the flower bit, flowery bits. Yeah. It's, it's kind of a sheath and then there's a spiky bit in the middle and Mm -hmm. like, I can't think of any way to describe it except that it looks like an arum (laughs) because it's just... I, I, it's very unhelpful and I've shouted at Yoram now three times for not describing it right because he said I first he said it looks like a dragon's mouth and then he said it looks like a tongue and neither of those is I, yeah, really helpful I still stand by it but I can stand see how it's not for everyone this description but yeah um, I think what's what's striking for me about this type of flower shape is that it's so asymmetrical mm-hmm. um, it's like really lopsided you sort of have like this be- big petal standing up on one side and then you have like the center column um, with the flowery bits on it. Uh, and very often you sort of have like a balanced structure. Like many yeah, flowers, if you put them in a centrifuge, they would be balanced. This one wouldn't. This one would rattle like crazy in a centrifuge. That was also a bit obscure. <laughs> was that obscure? I don't know. A washing machine also. Um, <laughs> okay, so fact one is that uh, <laughs> the black dragon looks like a tongue. Um, and fact two is that, so it, it has this... Um, <laughs> large petal which is also which is actually like a space um so i would call it a cloak i think it looks like an upside down cloak mm-hmm. and then it has this spiky bit this band spadics and it also makes a very unpleasant smell a lot of arums do they have this kind of rotting flesh smell mm-hmm. which i think often means they're attracting flies not bees or moths like i think mm-hmm. flies like rotting flesh i think that makes sense is then also like one of these like largest flowers in the in the world is that also part of that that only blooms every yeah, couple I think of years so. yeah i um, think we've seen that in a botanical garden together that's called a morphophallus right mm-hmm. morphophallus you can guess what that looks like based on the name it's called a morphophallus um yeah so i think this is it's also part of the aroid family mm-hmm. um yeah it looks apart yeah you guys all know what this looks like now like you have no excuse. <laughs> yeah, it's it's kind of hinted in there. Anyway, so yeah, a lot of these guys, they smell kind of nasty. They smell like fleshy, like but not just nice flesh, like rotten meat. Um, they're trying to attract flies as pollinators. As Yoram said, there's like some really big ones that only flower for like 24 hours every, I don't know, few years. And some of them also are able to heat themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and they specifically heat the flowers. So we've talked about that before on the blog. Um, I think it's called skunk cabbages. 
And these are plants that sort of appear in very early spring before the snow even melts. You have these sort of um, plants, just the flower there, and it's it's actually warming up its its local surroundings. So you get this like little melting around um, mm-hmm. and it attracts the insects. And I think some people have the idea that this, the heating helps to like bring the smell more, but it also makes like a nice environment for the insects to come and it's yeah. warm and attractive. Um, but yeah, this is this is really cool. I think just thermogenic plants so plants that can produce heat is in itself really amazing um we often think when when it comes to heating heating yourself we don't even think of animals apart from sort of like warm-blooded animals is doing that very much we're like oh yeah snake it can't even heat itself it needs the sun so like the idea that plants can do it i think that's Mm -hmm. i think that's something we should be promoting about plants because often people want to see plants as intelligent or like more human-like and this is cool they can warm (laughs) themselves up um yeah and they also do it in a kind of similar way to how we warm ourselves up so it's in the mitochondria and you're basically you've got this chain of energies you've got like electrons going through a chain kind of thing and if you stop something you end up with this energy that's in the electrons sort of escaping and it escapes in the form of heat. And that's, that's kind of how like heating works. Modern, like we have modern heating elements where like on the stove or like radiators, right? Where something's flowing through and like the heat is escaping mm-hmm. um, because of the resistance. Yeah, yeah. The electrical resistance, like any re- uh, electrical heating, it works like this, yeah. Yeah. If you basically, you know, you have energy, it has to get from A to B and if not all of it can go from A to B, it sort of leaks out of the pipeline and, and that's how you heat. And yeah, these plants are specifically quite often heating um, the flowers as a way to maybe reward the pollinators or also spread their, their stink throughout the world. We should build like a plant air conditioning unit that like heats in this process, but with the transpiration from a plant, it can also cool a room. Okay. So you just have to make a plant where you can adjust how much heat it produces um, or how much it cools your room. But then you could always have like perfect climate based on transpiration and self-heating. Yeah, but you are going to have to put up with like the rotten flesh smell. I mean, that's where genetic engineering can come in and then we can make it smell nice like vanilla, coconut. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, I'm trying to see if I can find a fact about how many different plants do this, but... It does say that there's found in a variety of family, but these these aroids, Araceae family, is the one that contains kind of mm-hmm. a lot of them quite famously. Mm-hmm. Do we have a, a word for me? Uh, my word is childhood. I don't think I have something for childhood. Wait. My second word is Ikea. My third word is composure. Composure. My fourth word is beaver. My hundred and fourth word is pink <laughs> or red. I'll accept red. I'm I'm very generous at this stage. Yeah. Red, yeah, yeah. I'll take I'll, I'll take that. Uh, I have I'll take red for three points. Red and and other flashy colors. Um, <laughs> I think it's something that we talked about, but I found this on a very recent sort of news bit um, from this month. So I don't know if it actually made the show, uh, but there has been a study that looked at um, what. Um, what plants are studied by researchers and I found that the f- more more colorful and flashy a plant is the more likely it is to be studied by researchers mm-hmm. and I mean from all of the hours that we spend on talking about biases and perception biases and so on it comes at no surprise um, 
that researchers, when they go around and look for things, the, the, it's more likely that they get interested in like a be beautiful color and something that like grows tall and stands out and something has like a specific shape of the of the plant. Whereas um, these plants are like they are interesting, but there are as many sort of ugly plants or plants that don't look very interesting that are like brown or um, have like a very common leaf shape. They might actually be endangered, but that doesn't increase their chance of being studied even um, because yeah researchers also are biased in the way that they like to pick the, the pretty plants and the things that look good um so yeah that's that's what i think there's a nature plants article that came out a couple of months ago we i think we did yeah. briefly mention this at the end of one of the podcasts yeah um, i think it came out in may came the the nature plants article and then the the story that i read was this month that it came out but yeah um so for you tegan Uh, something about growth, maybe. Okay, this is this is sort of growth, but it's also it's sort of growth in response to damage. Mm -hmm. And I think this has come up before, and it. I think the reason it's come up before is because Yoram likes lasers, and lasers. Exactly that. Now um, I can't focus anymore. What you're saying because I'm imagining me shooting lasers. So last week, um, in fact, number twenty-five to fifty, we talked about this idea of laser microdissection which mm -hmm. is where you basically burn around the outside of a cell or a type of uh, a group of cells that you're interested in and then pew pew they get sucked into a test tube so you're sort of cutting them out another thing you can do with a laser is just like burn a cell to death it's it's all very james bond um <laughs> it's called ablation which is just a fancy way of burning it to death of saying like yeah removing um yeah so this is a thing where people burn a cell to death <laughs> just like kill it remove it and then see how the plant responds um mm -hmm. to fix the problem and it yeah well it's quite interesting because <laughs> it seems like somebody just had like a laser uh, like a powerful laser lying around it was just like if i point it at a, a plant it makes like a nice burning like it makes a nice fire It's like, very oh, napalm in the morning. I love the smell of yeah. Rhabdopsis roots burning in the morning. And then you're just like, okay, but wait, like somebody comes in and is like, oh yeah, I'm totally doing science. I'm seeing how the plants react to me burning yeah, away yeah, yeah, yeah. tissue. <laughs> I mean, this is this is also the sort of burning that's, it's very, so we're going to link to an article. You can go look, they have a lot of videos in the article, which is quite satisfying to watch them like burn with a laser. Obviously, like you, you're doing this under a microscope. So visually not very stimulating if you're looking with your naked eye but very cool under the laser they so they burn a single cell and then this is like a wound to the cell and they want to understand how the plant then responds to this wound and it's important because like plants can't really move stuff around the same way that like animals can um and so if you like just take a bit out of the the edge of like a root cell the plant can't pick up a cell from somewhere else and put it there. It, it's it's got to like divide and it's got to divide in the right way. And it's also got to divide that the cell becomes the right type of cell. So like if you imagine the root of a plant, there are different cell levels. There's sort of an outside and an, an a, you know, second, third, like core of the, the root. Um, so they were looking at how the plant perceives that the wound has happened and knows to then divide one of its cells sort of outwards to to give a new cell into that place where the cell has been burnt to death by a laser. And so there's, this is just a study that was looking at that by piao piao piao, burning things with lasers and then seeing how they respond. And they see that 
what is involved is also pressure. So mm-hmm. if you have a, a cell next to another cell, that, that cell is exerting pressure, like they're, they're pushing against each other. Um, but if you remove one of those cells, suddenly there's, there's less pressure in that area. And that in itself is something that the, the nearby cell can sense. And then you have the activation of like hormones like auxin, and this sort of is stimulating the cell division. And it's, yeah, it's, it's not dividing, but it's also dividing from the right place and towards the right place. Um, and yeah, I think Yoram, you've written something about this I think in you, the past. You wrote it. I just made the, the, the cartoons for it. Oh, you made awesome cartoons for it. So we'll definitely include that, that link. Um, I think this is one of the most fun Yoram has ever had in drawing. <laughs> yeah, because it had lasers. <laughs> but then there's also like, I also had to draw a root tip with all of the cell layers and that was crazy. <laughs> um, yeah, it's a bit of a longer of read. And um, yeah, yeah, but it's it, it's really interesting stuff. So check that out. Also, there are lasers involved. <laughs> there's cartoons, there's lasers, there's plant roots. Like, what what else could you ask for, honestly? Yeah, but the pressure part makes makes a lot of sense to me because, like, within the cell, like, if you look at it, you sort of get the idea that you have just, like, a very rigid sort of setup system, but it's, like, there's so many forces balanced. Like, every mm. internal pressure of the cell is balanced against the pressure of the neighbors. And obviously, if you take away a neighbor, then you sort of suddenly press against something that's gone and so you and maybe it bulges out or something but definitely there's like less well, resistance in that part i've also seen this in um so i've seen a, a, some seminars on this at one point looking at epidermal cells so it's like the sort of skin layer the outside layer of for example a plant leaf and it's it's clear but if you look under a microscope these cells are they're very oddly shaped they're actually called pavement cells mm-hmm. and it's they sort of look like tiles but not they're kind of puzzle pieces. Yeah, they're not like a regular repeated pattern, right? They're sort of all... A bit mixed. Yeah, puzzle, I think puzzle, puzzle is the is easiest. Perfect, yeah. yeah, and then if you imagine a puzzle, you have some bits that are like more flat and some of the sort of concave and convex. And these parts themselves, because of the shape, they have different pressure on the edges. So if you think of a very tight corner, there's like a different pressure on like that part of the cell than there is on like a longer, flatter piece, like how even the pressures are. And people have also been, I've seen experiments where they're like, Pew! they like burn out one of the pavement cells and see how the ones around it are sort of responding and how much of their shape is also related to the pressure of the, the mm-hmm. nearby. The thing is, it's really cool. And it's also one of those things where there are so many elements that don't Im- I don't immediately think of when I think of like how plants are doing what they're doing. You're like, I- pressure is involved. Like, yeah. I mean, yeah. Okay. Like genes and yeah, but sure, sure. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> I mean, it's one of the few things that, um, that a plant can control, right? The internal pressure. That's how it does movement for the stomata, like the little guard cells that open and close the little holes on the underside of leaves that let air in and out. Um, or even like mimosa or some of like the sort of fast moving plants that's all like pressure sensitive. It's like changing the pressure in these cells because they don't really have like muscle cells that can contract. Mm-hmm. So instead they can like make cells stiffer or softer. And if you do that in the right way in many places, you can move a plant. You can like bend it in a certain direction, um, grow in a certain direction. Um, yeah, I... I just like the idea of these like tiny mechanisms, sort of like hydraulic mechanisms. I think there's actually like a a field that studies like plant microhydraulics or something that they call it. Like I've seen Mm -hmm. hydraulics in a paper, definitely, like in the titles. Have you got another word for me? Do you have something on on grasses? 
I mean, I have something on sea grasses. It's a grass. <laughs> yeah, I think I think my thing on sea grasses was just this kind of general, and we've talked about this before many many months ago. This fact that sea grasses are they're not algae, they're not kelp, they're like flowering plants, they're angiosperms that like potted back into the water, and you know, they're still doing flowering plant things. So they're, they're monocots. And so this was, this was linked to the, the dragon arum, the black dragon plant. Mm-hmm. So basically all, yeah, all seagrasses belong to this one larger, I'm not sure if it's a family or an order, but it's called the Alismatales. So it's an order. Ale. Um, so this is an order of flowering plants, which are monocots, and it's got about 4,500 species. And most of them are tropical or aquatic. And then the aquatic ones, they can like be in freshwater, but also in marine habitats. And basically everything that's a seagrass is from that group um, that's gone back into land. And I think that's in itself is kind of interesting. Um, yeah, that- how, like if they're flowering... Like, do they do the whole pollination bit? And mm-hmm. how is it like fish that are pollinating them? Small crustaceans. So there, there is some sort of idea that they can form sort of more elongated strands, which I guess would make it easier that the pollen just doesn't spread everywhere. But then there's also this idea that they kind of just release it into the wind, but now the wind is the water and there's sort of just this flow on water current. This might be useful. Like it's, it's more one directional. Maybe it's not coming back at you. It's going like mm-hmm. onto the net. Maybe that's a win. It's not a win if you're the one who's like the furthest to the yeah. top. Yeah. It's only like if you want to just spread your pollen and you don't care about accepting any pollen. Yeah. Also, realistically, there's probably, I don't know if there's strong car. Anyway, um, so <laughs> they, they, it's mostly sort of spread by, by water as with wind pollination. But there is some research from, I think, 2016 and probably, probably other times as well, that maybe there are invertebrates also that can... Mm-hmm maybe eat the pollen because it's also tasty and they could act like tiny underwater bees. Basically they, they can also be pollinators. Um, yeah. That's why I call like crustaceans, like the underwater bugs. And that's why I don't really want to eat them because they, yeah. Or bugs could be air crustaceans and then they seem a bit tastier. Right. If we say like it's no, an air crab. Equally, uh, equally untasty to me. Isn't this a thing for, for locusts? There's these huge swarms of locusts and the idea of thinking of them as like, air shrimp it's maybe <laughs> encouraging people to eat them more air shrimp does sound nicer definitely like with some garlic and butter yeah mm. anything with garlic and butter is a win i think that's the <laughs> in the end you just like garlic and butter oh yeah that's that's really cool to think about like these these ocean currents um transporting the pollen uh and then like the little sea creatures helping with pollination as well yeah i never thought about these underwater plants how they do the things that we sort of intuitively understand on land. Especially because I just think we don't think of sea grasses as being a flowering plant. Like mm-hmm. we don't put them in that same sort of... Especially because, I, I don't know, as a plant scientist, we're a little bit snobby about flowering plants. I think we're like, yeah, yeah. they're like the best plants. They've like done the most work to diverge from being like a single-celled thing, mm-hmm. uh, which is, you know, very snobby. <laughs> but... If we are going to be snobs, we should also include seagrasses in our snobbery. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> not to not be snobby, but... Okay, sorry, Yoram. What is the, your next word for me? Yeah, from beneath you it devours. That's a Buffy quote. <laughs> All of the rest of my prompts will be Buffy quotes. 
<laughs> I have something uh, from from beneath at Devours um, because if you if you um, take a shower and then you have hair waste from beneath beneath you, ew, and that is devoured by fungus. Um, and I mean, in this case, it's hair waste, not from a shower that they took, but they they found a fungus that can grow on the carotene in hair. Mm-hmm. Um, and while doing that, it makes all sorts of anti antimicrobial compounds. Um, and I found a study where they would then grow tomato plants on the supernatant from this fungus. So the fungus grows uh. on hair. It makes all of t- all sorts of antimicrobial compounds. And then you take just sort of the watery solution and you um, put that on tomato plants. And in this one study, uh, it would promote um, tomato plant growth. Um, Why are all your facts today about juice residues? <laughs> <laughs> and then with a the leftover juice that's somehow linked to both fungus and human body parts that have been discarded... It seems to be an internal bias whenever I find, <laughs> find something about that. And then you grow something edible with the hair, water, fungus juice. <laughs> cool. Um, yeah, so that's my, my, it's a little bit of a stretch, but I found it interesting <laughs> that there's like a fungus that grows on hair. Um, and that's a little Ew. bit disgusting, but then maybe that could be like next time, like we can select all the shower drain hair and then water our tomatoes with the <laughs> fungus juice. Firstly, that needed a trigger warning. And secondly, I need to take a t- quick break to go and wash my hair. Ugh. <laughs> Just like bleach everything. <laughs> okay, my next uh, call out is going to be through the fire. <laughs> Yara made me listen to the Buffy soundtrack about eight times since I've been staying at his house. So... <laughs> For those of you not in the know, as, as shame if you on wouldn't you. Like it. Uh, no, I don't really have anything hot, heat, fire related. Bunnies. Uh, Bunnies is the next one. <laughs> I'm trying to anticipate what's coming next. In a hole six foot deep. Yeah. Rest in peace. <laughs> uh, I can I can make something out of rest in peace um, of rotting wood and um, because I found a story. Um, that's very remotely plant-related, it ha- but it has rotting wood in it. Uh, I found a story about jousting battles that happen on rotting wood. Um, there's a thing called giraffe weevils. Um, <laughs> these are like creatures that like live on, on dead wood, uh, and they have very, very long sort of extended heads, and mm. that's why they're called giraffe uh, weevils. And there's been a recent study about them where they looked at the fitness of these these creatures. They like they so they do these jousting battles. They literally try to push each other off the bark with their very long heads um, as a mating um, thing. So that the mature animals they try to push each other off, and then the largest male has then a chance to mate with the female that's there. Um, and so they thought, like, why, like, what is the relationship? Like, it ties in with the honest signaling that we talked about before. Um, so the the large head is a signal that this is a very strong uh, weevil, and so it's like a good mate. But then they thought, like, is this actually true? And they they did they put them on a tiny treadmill <laughs> and figured out like how much energy they spend, and they also measured their oxygen consumption. Yeah. So like in a little like. Uh, athlete cam where they do like have the oxygen masks on to see like how fit they are and they run on a treadmill have i had this discussion with you before that like i want all research to be linked to animals on track like is it <laughs> i think we mentioned that one of the greatest things on the on youtube is 
um, a shrimp running on a treadmill to the Benny Hill theme song. And it's one of the the greatest things that exists. But yeah, okay, sorry. Carry yeah, on. so this is a weevil on a treadmill. Yeah. And I figured out that the, the, the larger weevils per body weight are actually consuming less energy. So they actually require less energy per gram of their body weight when they're bigger compared to smaller ones. So, But wait, that that's logical, right? Yeah, if you if you think about the anatomy, um, you quickly find the reason why. Yeah, but they. But isn't it just like you need you have basic a basic necessity for underlying body like there's basic body functions that require a set amount of energy, yeah. and then you don't you know you add a few kilos, but you don't become you don't get an extra heart with those few kilos. Yeah, that that is true. Um, but you might need more energy than to like lift this very heavy head up, for mm-hmm. example. That's the that's what they they thought could be. But but you're right that the soft tissue, the tissue that actually requires all of the energy, doesn't grow proportionally with the weight mm-hmm. because a lot of the weight goes into sort of the dead material that forms the outer shell of the insect. And that doesn't require active energy to maintain. It requires energy to be moved around, but not to sort of the cell. There are no living cells inside. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's why um, an th- uh, um, adult that is 30 times larger than another one doesn't require 30 times more energy. Um, but still, they think um, it's uh, it's still a link to, to fitness because, um, yeah, it's it's still a sign that they're, they're very fit because they. what's interesting in these weevils is that when they grow into the adult stage, they emerge from like this last puppet stage and they don't all emerge the same size. You have like these huge differences. They have like small ones, medium size and large ones. And apparently the large ones, they have like more energy to grow that big and that's why they're a good mate. But interestingly, also the small ones have a chance at mating because they sort of sneak in when the large ones are sort of defending the female and there's like a video where like the small one sneaks in. And the ones that are really the, the losers in the story are the medium-sized ones because mm-hmm. they're too small, too big to sneak and too small to f- actually fight. So they're the ones that don't really get anything. Also, yes, but also that was not a plant fact. That was a weevil fact, but I think it's worth it. Um, do you have something about shell? Shell? Shell. Like the outer shell of a seed or a crustacean. Or a weevil. <laughs> no, I don't have anything about shells. <laughs> um, do you have something about travel or movement? <laughs> the world's worst guessing game. <laughs> something beginning with movement. <laughs> um, <laughs> I have the I have the world's worst fact to to put in with the world's worst guessing game, and this is a fact that is a surprise to no one. But I feel like our podcast, I was thinking about this and I just think our podcast would not be complete without making this fact be in it. Um, The fact is that mitochondria are a continuous whole. That's the entire fact. Thank you. Good evening. (laughs) Um, This is just, so the fact is that mitochondria, when you see them in a textbook, it's kind of this like oval jelly bean shaped thing. Um, But in reality, they are constantly like moving around throughout the cell and they merge with other mitochondria and then they like break up again. They fission fuse I don't, I don't know how we say that fission and fusion but i'm not sure what yeah they they undergo fission and fusion but i think it should be fizz and fuse are the two words yeah. um and sometimes you see them and there's like this kind of long tube and sometimes you see it and it's basically looks quite crappy it's like um quite small and yeah this this moving and shaping and shifting also means there is 
there's less mitochondria in different parts of like the leaf in different parts of the plant at different ages and developmental stages. And the mitochondria also, there's on average less than one mitochondrial genome per mitochondria, which means there's, there's kind of things that look like mitochondria roaming around which don't have a genome inside them. This is different from chloroplast. Chloroplast can have like tens to 100 copies of the chloroplast genome and they're not, they're not giving up their genome. Um, mitochondria are kind of weird and it's, it's a bit unclear. Like obviously these, these guys without genomes at some point should be fusing with something that does have a genome to share that genome, to get proteins. Maybe they've just like broken up recently and that's why they don't have um, the genome. But I, I just had to mention this. I'm sure a lot of you have heard this before, but the, the term that is used is a continuous whole, W-H-O-L-E. So they're mm-hmm. all part of a sort of a network. But every time I read it, I think continuous whole, which is like a hole in the ground. And it's <laughs> like just this idea of being a continuous, it's just the stupidest thing that won't leave my brain. And every time I read it, I just kind of smirk and then feel like an idiot. And I just, I wanted to share that with you so that now you all have the disease. It's like when somebody tells you, oh, that actress, she can only, her mouth is always open when she's acting and then you can never watch a film with her or, you know, oh, he, he's always got his hair like on a tilt and then you can't, everything is ruined for you from that point because you can't not see the hair. So now every time you think of mitochondrial genomes or, or, or see the phrase continuous hole, just think of a hole that's continuous. It's not a hole anymore. It's a tunnel, which is part of the, there's no such thing anyway um <laughs> welcome to my nightmare this is actually why i had to quit being an academic i i couldn't get around this is what broke you this is what broke me for some reason i chose a job where i actually read more articles than before but yeah this this mental yeah. breakage yeah i always think of the mitochondria when i like often i think about them in a textbook way but when i think about a continuous whole thing is when do you know like these toys that you sometimes have where have like an oil like that has a color in it and water and you sort of turn it over and then mm-hmm. it bubbles through and then you have like all of the like it's randomly splits into these bubbles yeah it's kind of like an inverse lava lamp but a lava lamp is also a good idea but, yeah yeah but this is how i imagine it like it, they sort of break apart and fuse together and sort of yeah. when they're all together that's like the whole thing and then you have like, but they're never all together. They're never all like. Yeah, you never, never have like one big blob of mitochondrium. Mm-mm. But um, still, yeah, like they, they constantly fuse, and we all always just look at snapshots, and then we see like the individual droplets and think, oh, this is a mitochondrium. But in a living cell, they sort of. There's also like there's a perspective separate. element there as well. So if you have if you think of like a jelly bean, a three dimensional jelly bean, if you slice it like on the sort of down the halfway, mm-hmm. you can slice it either like lengthwise or perpendicular yeah like vertically so you can either if you looked at that just from the ends that you cut open you could either have this like still long jelly bean shape or you could have this kind of a circle where you've cut it like like a banana directly in half so there's also that kind of involved when we take microscopic images but also mitochondria are a stupid continuous hole and that's why any plant scientist with self-respect would probably study chloroplasts (laughs) i would assume um they don't even have an entire genome to themselves. They have to share <laughs> and not in the good way. So they're, they're, they're communists. Mitochondria are communists. <laughs> chloroplasts are capitalists. You heard yeah, it here chloroplasts first. Are making, like, chloroplasts should secede. They're making all the money. Like They have the riches. What the hell are mitochondria doing? <laughs> they're the powerhouses to the cell. They're the workers of the cell. <laughs> oh, this got weird. They're also pink and red color. Like this is, 
you know, they're either grey coloured or pretty. <laughs> okay, this got to. This is like p- a political uh, political theory based on pa- plant um, biology. Do you know this is a thing where you always kind of think, you know, we've all probably got one children's book in us. Like, I probably couldn't write a novel, but I might be able to write a children's book. Like, <laughs> and maybe that's going to be our our children's book. It's like we'll educate people both on the internal workings of, of plant cells while also having a very strong communist <laughs> propaganda that like hopefully to start with people won't notice and then by the end of the book it will be like, yes, comrade. <laughs> we'll be there. Uh, do you have another word for me? Wish I could stay. <laughs> I wish I could stay with Excel as my analy- uh, analytical tool for my research. Um, with but Excel? Excel, yeah. Uh-huh. Um, there's a new study in the never-ending spree of studies that look at gene names and Excel. And there's been a new one. Like we talked about it in the past, mm-hmm. um, how very often... So the story so far, what happened before? Researchers found out that when Sorry. they put gene names in Excel, they were sometimes changed. Yes. Then the Human Genome Project changed names of genes so they don't get changed that often anymore mm-hmm. by Excel. And so now a new study looks at, like, did that actually help? And no, still about 30% of all data that is uh, like published together with like um, with articles that's in the Excel format, about 30% still has problems where gene names are automatically changed to dates or other formats and therefore broken and therefore not accessible anymore for f- uh, future studies. Um, and yeah, so the, the, the problem continues. And Sorry, I put it here in the, pl- in, in the plant section because they specifically say in the paper that changing the names in the human genome is one step that helps, but there's so many other genomes where this, where there are no gene names changed, where you still run the risk of adding, that, like analyzing that in Excel and then getting, like accidentally ruining your data set by saying like this gene is called Mar- um, 1st of March. Firstly, also this change, this discussion that's, I mean, Yoram hates Excel. You really need to know that he has not just a bias, but an actual agenda, an active agenda here. So this is not just, this is not yeah, I'm objective biased. thinking that's happening here. But It's <laughs> peer-reviewed in a journal. Now I'm like, sure, now but I have also, peer-reviewed. I mean, let me guess, those authors also have a bias against Excel. I mean... So basically to change this discussion, this, you know, previously on wehateexcel.com, this discussion was only a couple of months ago, like when they did the changes to the human gene. It's not like 12 years ago. No, not 12 years ago, but I I think in the last year or something. Okay, but then I think still 30% of published. Is it 30% published since that change was made or also in the history of publications? And then also, by the way, we're not looking at the actual species where we made the changes. We're looking at different species. That's a bit like, that's a bit rubbish. Um, yeah, I like they said, like, I think it was around 20% in 2016 when I did that. And they okay. have now 30.9% in the new data set that they analyzed. I don't know what they said when they changed um, the names. But they're using data from different organisms and the organisms. No, no, they, they only looked at like human. And the he- human, okay. As far as I, I know, they only looked at like human um, data sets, but they say like the problem exists, of course, also uh, somewhere else. And they put, put like a little box in their, in their paper with tips on how to avoid these problems. And you might guess that the first one is don't use Excel, but then they say like, if you have to use Excel, then, for example, use sorry, the, the first one is don't use Excel. Yeah, yeah. The first one is that you should use like Python or R. Uh-huh. Um, the next one is that you should l- use LibreOffice instead of Microsoft Excel because LibreOffice doesn't have this automatic replacement problem. Can you not just turn it off in Excel? 
I think you can, but I, at least with my experience with Excel, like every time you update it, it might like switch some stuff back on. So it's not really reliable, but they also say like, give you tips how to check if you have the problem, if you have already done your analysis, there's like some ways you sort your data and then mm-hmm. all of the dates come up at the top and then you realize, oh, this shouldn't be dates. This should be gene names. Anyway. Yeah, this is, um, the, I think it will be it will go on forever, and I think I will um, cite this stuff forever whenever I find it because <laughs> it gives me smug joy. <laughs> Have you got a word for me, or am I doing a word for you? Uh, no, I should give you a word, and maybe I give you fast. Fast. Nope. Furious. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I do have furious. So this is something that's completely uh, not modern at all. It's actually linked to something that came out in 20, 2004. It's not even 20 something. It's 2004. Um, but there's a few, there's a few facts that I remember hearing and they stuck in my mind. And one of my favorite facts is the fact, you know, that bees can heat up wasps to death Mm -hmm. you know bees are able to get a little bit warmer than wasps so when a wasp comes they just like swarm it and they murder it and that's one of my favorite facts not because i particularly love murderous bees but because my memory is terrible and sometimes people ask you what your favorite for science facts is and that that's all i can reach for um but another thing i I heard about and yoram you probably also heard about this was that back in 2004 there was a company um it's a danish company that was designing plants that could detect landmines. And I always had a particular fascination with the idea of plants, but also like fungi are often used as well as sort of fixing problems that we humans have made. Um, So bioremediation, it can be like detecting or cleaning up oils or, you know, heavy metals or something. Um, In this case, it's just detecting landmines. Um, So Arabidopsis is just this kind of weed that we all use as a model plant. And they modified the Arabidopsis so that when it um, senses a certain thing that comes from landmines, I think in this time it's in this case it's nitrogen dioxide, they it triggers a change in colour. Basically they produce anthocyanins, I think, and they become red. Yes, it is anthocyanins. So then if you sort of spray it, I think the company was, the company seems to be defunct. I clicked through on their website and there wasn't anything more, but that's fair. It's 15 years ago. Um, They were planning to do this not only for landmines, but also for heavy metals, cadmium and nickel. Um, And they were also planning to develop some sort of like seed gun to spray the, the seeds, Mm -hmm. which is the, the, the next thing. But I just, I do think this is quite interesting that you can actually make plants like Arabidopsis, which are basically useless apart from the fact that they're the most useful plant in the world for science. Um, but you can give them these extra yeah. functions. And also I, I love this bioremediation stuff. I love this kind of potential solution. It's, it's kind of, it's that positive future thinking Often, the, I mean, I know you're, you're a bit skeptical because often these things don't come into fruition. Like, I don't think this has ever been actually used in the field, but it's a different way of thinking of a problem which could eventually become yeah something nope. cool. Yeah, that, that would have been my question because I've, I've heard about this, but I've never heard sort of a follow-up on this. But I also, I find it super fascinating because also plants being living creatures have the self-replication ability. So if you want to have something like a detection mechanism, it could be very good that 
this is a stable system for years. Like if you would think about any sort of technical sensor, you would have to like replace batteries and so on. If you grow just like a, a big patch of, of like, let's say like cadmium detecting flowers, um, mm-hmm. they would stay there for, for not forever, but for a long time. And then like when you have somewhere like cadmium showing up uh, from like um, some, some human activities or they get into new areas, then you see that like that can be a huge advantage. So I find that super fascinating. I don't, I don't know. Like, I mean, so this one is using anthocyanins and the, the, the obvious problem to me is that when you think about Arabidopsis in the lab, you think of this green plant. When you see Arabidopsis in the wild, it's anyway quite red because mm-hmm. it's quite stressed. So I'm not sure. Yeah. As far as keeping it growing for ages, I'm, I'm not super certain if that's realistic. Like I think, yeah, you get a lot of like false positives and like or, and false negatives. You know, things not working. Um, yeah, also like gene silencing and like adaptation over generations. It's true. You're also like in this case, you're hacking something that the plant itself can do, so it, it can produce the red coloring itself. But it, it usually does that, firstly, to protect itself, um, or you know, from the sun, as we've discussed at the start of the podcast. Um, but that also comes at a cost to the plant. So you're probably decreasing its ability to photosynthesize by making too much sunscreen, mm-hmm. and then you're also it's a huge cost to make. So that's not good for the plant. Also, so yeah, and then true. I mean, also in this case, they're saying that um, like Arabidopsis has quite shallow roots, whereas Milan mines could be a bit deeper. So anyway, maybe this is not mm-hmm. the right thing um but it's just kind of an interesting concept i, w- I would say yeah. and yeah it, basically there's, there's a lot of landmines in the world still and they're being laid down faster than removed this is back in 20 2004 but that's quite a horrifying mm-hmm. fact um yeah so i think i like it as a concept and as a fun idea and as i said 2004 i was still in school then and the fact that this is stuck in my mind from then i just yeah but it's also the time like i think around 2010 that i visited um a lab where they would also talk about uh, phytoremediation in so that's sort of the the cleaning up of soils with the help of plants uh, i think mm. in in halle or leipzig um so not not very far away from here and it also stuck with me ever since because they they had like some some grasses that they were um studying and seeing if they could sort of increase the heavy metal uptake of these grasses so you could grow the grasses and then um, they would take up the heavy metals and you could remove all of the sort of above ground material, put mm-hmm. that in a special play, like burn it and then keep the ashes safe because then you would have in the ashes, you would have the heavy metals concentrated and removed from the soil. Uh, yeah. And I'm still like, I'm still thinking about that uh, and hoping that like every day I wake up. <laughs> um, and But I think there's also, this is kind of part of the general... <laughs> Going forward into the future and the many things that humans have damaged in the world, there's a lot of these discussions about, you know, also using plants, obviously, to help us with the climate emergency and Mm -hmm. nature-based solutions is is the the buzz term. Yeah. I think it's, that's quite realistic, a bit depressing, but realistic. (laughs) Um, Do you have a word for me? Pleasure. Um, Yeah, pleasure. Something that gives me pleasure is uh, computer stuff. Um, And I talked in the past about the the solar-powered server, like that's like a plant that's Mm solar-powered. And now there's like um, a computer protocol um, that can keep multiple servers connected based on where the sun is. So it's like multiple solar-powered servers across the world and it's sort of a collaboration across the world. And depending on where the sun is right now, um, you connect 
to the server that sees the sun right now. So you're always connecting. Before that, it would always, like at night, you would be on battery power and during the day, you would be on solar power. And this way, you're always on solar power because these servers, like, they, they I don't know, like computer scientists made a protocol to tell the computer where the sun is shining and then your computer connects to the other computer that sees the sun right now. Um, that's it pretty still much. needs its own energy source to do that though, right? Yeah, I mean, it's still like local battery run but it's it's, it's like the server itself the yeah the final server that, that gives you the web page that's on solar power but the stuff before that sort of the standard network connection stuff that's still like conventional service that might or might not be running on solar power okay. but i just like the idea like they have a very nice website that goes with it as well um that shows you like where in the world you're connecting to because the sun is shining there right now okay your next prompt is going to be plant because i don't think so <laughs> I don't think that was actually a plant fact. <laughs> I have other real plant facts. Was that was that a plant fact? Do you it's think? so like stuff that plants are solar powered, and this is solar powered. That makes it a plant. Yeah, fact. my next fact is about caterpillars because they're also green. <laughs> okay, yeah, and they eat plants. Totally a plant <laughs> fact in my books. Uh, I mean, we let it get. We, the other thing is. The cat facts, they got less and less cat related. We were like, okay, a rat is fine, a bat is fine. It's like an animal and it still kind of rhymes with cat. And then he's like, oh, my cat fact today is a giraffe fact. And we let that happen. Like, this is my fault too. I let that happen. It's a slippery slope. It's Tegan. such a slippery slope. <laughs> Advantage has been taken. <laughs> how, how many facts do we have now? Um, we need three more. All right. Do you want me to do one? You got to throw a word at me. Um, uh... <laughs> Yeah. Plant. <laughs> no. Um, see-through. <gasps> yes. <laughs> yes. Um, so this is a fact that was given by a friend via Facebook. Um, thank you very much. And it's the fact that mosses can live under pebbles. But mm -hmm. obviously that's more helpful if the pebbles are a bit see-through. And that means that they're kind of using um, quartz, I think as mm -hmm. the pebbles so you know a, a quartz if you know it's kind of a, a semi-precious stone that is a bit clearer yeah so the moss lives on rock but not any rock it has to be sort of these quartzes and like milky quartzes so then you have um that some light is coming through but it's also sort of milky so it's not letting all the light through and it's also not like magnifying the light and and zapping the the moss and can you think why they would live under a rock? They don't really want to stay up to date with modern technology. Yeah, I thought that's where we we're going. Um, it's basically that, but they don't want to stay up to date with the, the world around them. Um, they live in the the desert. They live in the Mojave Desert. Is that how we say it? Like where Death Valley is. So it's this most extreme Mojave, Mojave Desert. Yeah, that's probably right. Yeah, it's a J. Mojave Desert. <laughs> um, yeah, Death Valley. It's it's one of these most extreme environments on earth it barely gets any rain it's insanely hot but i think it also gets very very cold as well um at night time so it's like these extremes um it's dry and the thing about moss is they can survive dryness but they don't really they sort of just go into this stasis they mm -hmm. um but there's a moss that's called centrichia and it lives in that desert and it does that by living under a rock and under the rock it's cooler in the daytime and in the hot summer it's warmer in nighttime um, so it gets buffered by having this kind of cozy little nook and you can also imagine like uh, sort of underneath a rock you have maybe the ability to trap a little bit of water so um, 
yeah, yeah or it evaporates less quickly like yeah it's moister which yeah moss likes moist environments um but also with the freezing so it gets really cold and it, it's again like you have to the temperature mass of the rock that first has to sort of be depleted right like it's like exactly. a warm rock at the end of the day mm. I, I imagine like like a quartz is like this sort of like dark glassy material so it's like sunglasses like it has its, its yeah. own pair of sh- shades that it grows under but then if you think yeah it's a bit, bit milky so it's not too too much light cut sort of the right amount of light coming through um and yeah, the, the dampness, the, the fact they have here is that, you know, the rain comes and it just comes very rarely and fast and then it's gone. And a moss out in the normal landscape, not hiding under a rock, within a couple of hours, it will be completely dry again. Um, the sun is very hot. But if you're hiding under a, a rock, you might have like two weeks of dampness that mm-hmm. is, I guess, also impossible, uh, important for mosses with their reproduction. So they have these like spores, but they, they need water as a way to... yeah. Um, reproduce right how so. big are the rocks that we're t- talking about here like are there like pebbles like or are, are there like big slabs uh they're like i think pebbles more mm-hmm. um oh i know their thickness they're like one to four centimeters thick so oh, they're yeah, but still that's thicker than i imagined first like i thought it's like mm. yeah it says also that it's like only about four percent of the sunlight gets through so you've also got it's basically like living in a cave, um, mm-hmm. which is what mosses anyway kind of like, I guess. So this is the mosses found the cave in the desert where somehow things work, which is mm-hmm. ridiculous. But well done, moss. I guess it's I guess it's a bit stuck there once it's <laughs> I don't know if it's moving around. Yeah, I imagine it must be hard then to find new areas if everything around you is not under a quartz. I feel like it's surviving, not thriving. I'm gonna be honest. <laughs> Do you have another word for me? Something to sing about. <laughs> um, I would sing about uh, the fact that... I mean, I really gave you a lot there. <laughs> yeah. If I'm like, oh, I have nothing for that. Um, I have I have something that's just coconuts are seeds, fruit, and nut, depending on the definition that you, uh, that you give it, sort of on a um, sort of general definition, you would call it a nut, but it also has like these... Um, these uh, make up of like three layers and mm-hmm. like the exocarp the outer layer then the mesocarp which is sort of fleshy middle bit and the endocarp which is the hard woody layer um, that surrounds the seed um, that would make it a fruit okay um, and it's also like a, a religious symbol is it did you get that in school we got this like um, you know because the, the Catholic idea of like the trinity of God the, the father the son and the holy spirit Mm-hmm. And they're like, think of like an apple. It's got the outside skin, the fleshy white part and the seed, but they're all the apple. And that's the same as God, the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. But all they're all God. They're all like, <laughs> no? Anyway. No, I think I've heard that before now. I've, I've, I think it's a little bit ridiculous, but um, but yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> So yeah, that's that's what I found like about coconuts that they are these things. But I, I think coconuts in general are interesting. Like I've I also found like I talked about the like IV fact before, but also the, the, the that they are these like little flotation devices and that how mm-hmm. that's how they uh, reach new shores and like end up on new land uh, because they're growing next to water and just like drop in there and float for quite a while and then they bring tons of nutrients with them to grow a new new coconut tree somewhere. Um so that's quite cool. So you can be annoying at more annoying at parties now by t- selling, telling people like coconuts are both like all 
seeds, fruit, and nut? I definitely don't think I can tell you if something is a seed or a f- like fruit or and if it's a fruit or a droop or a yeah. berry or like there's like kind of these different subcategories as well where it's like a strawberry is not actually a berry because it's made up of five billion individual berries that together form a I don't know something yeah I think I already said that like in in one of the last episodes causes me pain about the that many vegetables are actually fruit yeah. like tomatoes are actually fruit and so on um Yeah. <laughs> That's the entire quality of our facts here. Tomatoes are fruit. <laughs> have you heard that one before, you guys? But also legally they're vegetables. Because if you have tomatoes on your pizza, that counts as one serving as vegetables if you eat your food in a United States school. <laughs> I, I had that on um, QI like 10 years ago. That's definitely not, yeah. not current information. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think they change it by now again. I hope so. Um, the last fact, uh, maybe protection? Yes. So this is another like personal fascination of mine, which I think I probably share with a lot of people, which is basically any plants that can live in very extreme environments. So extremophiles, Mm -hmm. um, and it ranges from, you know, very salty to very dry to very cold. Um, But specifically, I'm thinking now of resurrection plants. Mm -hmm. So these are the ones that can get very, very dry. They can, I think, go down to like 1% of or even 0.1% of their mass becoming is is water in the end so they can like completely dry up and look crispy and dead and then yeah so sorry they can survive absolute water content down to 0.1 grams of water per grams of their weight so they're just like there's no water inside them mm-hmm. which if you think of like a normal human we're like 70% water like something like lettuce must be like 99% water basically so these things just shrivel up and basically become paper slash dust yeah um it's just like a bit of cellulose with some protein dried up protein inside yeah and then they i mean that's not the trick because that's just death the trick is that then they come back to life again <laughs> um thus the resurrection in the name this also really was how is an apple more of a christian yeah this was plant a than nice a segue plant? <laughs> um because this would only be about Anyway, we're not going there. This is not what this episode, this is not what this podcast is about, Yaram. <laughs> so resurrection plant is kind of a, a general term for plants that can sort of die and come back again. Um, they're not really dying. They're just playing dead. Uh, so there's about 300 different species of flowering plants that have this resurrection ability. It's, it's not like a, a genus or a family. It's just like the quality um, mm-hmm. that they have. And it's, It's kind of an interesting problem at the sort of molecular level and specifically when we think about photosynthesis because as you get dry, you don't have water. And when you don't have water, you can't keep your air holes, your stomata open. And then you can't have carbon dioxide coming in. And basically that means you're drying out, but you also are not getting like the right exchange of carbon dioxide and dioxide, which means you're really affecting how photosynthesis happens. You've got, Mm -hmm. again, this chain of things that, you know, it has to be processing from A to to Z and everything's happening in the middle. And if you put blockages in those chains, things tend to get quite bad. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's basically internal explosions. That's how we often um, describe it. But another way of saying is you get these, these buildup of reactive oxygen species, which is, Which is why humans are so obsessed with eating blueberries. It's like antioxidants, you know. Reactive oxygen species are these nasty things that damage your cell and damage your DNA and make cell you look stress. old if you're a woman. Um, yeah. But yeah, reactive oxygen species are not just a marketing ploy by, 
you know, brands of feminine face cream, they're, they're actually a real thing that happens inside the cell. Um, and they, they are made when photosynthesis gets a bit blocked. And this can happen as you die out. Um, so the question is, how do resurrection plants deal with this? And there's kind of two basic mechanisms. And one of them is that they just shut everything down. So they're getting dry and they just like unpack all their photosynthetic machinery. And they're like, let's put that away, put it in the drawer. Um, we, we can't have this working right now because we'll internally explode. Um, that's one option. And then the other option is there's ones which don't do that um, because also unpacking and, and remaking everything takes a lot of energy. And if you're kind of almost dead for a long time, you don't have a lot of energy to, to remake things. It's, it's a bit risky. Um, so there's, there's risks on both sides. If you, if you don't unpack, you can explode. And if you do unpack, you might not be able to put it back up again. Mm-hmm. But yeah, some of the other, the second type of resurrection plants, they, they move things around instead. So they don't just break everything down, but they, they sort of shift where, how their photosynthetic complexes work. Um, and they, they also make sort of extra protective things. Um, they have like physical movements. They can like fold and curl the leaves to prevent light from actually getting mm-hmm. to those systems. The systems are still there, but there's no light coming in, which means no explosions. Um, and then they have like, you know, these sunscreens we talked about, but also like, hairs or waxy cuticles which like reflect the light they're not just keeping Mm -hmm. water in but they also reflect lights um and all of these extra mechanisms so i find it really fascinating because it's just all of these different layers of yeah it's it's kind of movement with the wrapping of the leaf it's like physical structures it's like chemicals being produced i mean wax is also it's kind of something even different from those internal Mm -hmm. chemicals um and then on top of that you've got things that are like cleaning up the the reactive oxygen. So you have antioxidants, which are moving, like vacuuming everything up. And then on top of that, you're also, um, yeah, you're producing these internal sunscreens and you're also changing how your complexes are, like how many of them that they are, how dense they are and like altering the levels. All of this because you're in this crazy environment that, mm-hmm. you know, maybe plants weren't supposed to live in there. Maybe go somewhere, not, like maybe... Like the moss, survive and thrive. Um, no, it's really it's it's really important because these species are taking a, an environmental niche that mm-hmm. many others cannot. And you know, by plants being there, you're then making it possible for animals to be there. Like this is plants are the foundation of everything, you guys. I don't know. I don't know if we've got that through to you yet, but like, yay, plants. Um, yeah, yeah. What what I like. All the processes that you, you, you said, like many of them you find in other plants as well, but rarely you find them all stacked up. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's so really cool about them that they really sort of took all of the things you can do to protect yourself from, from these conditions, from these, yeah, from the heat and from the sunlight. And you just like stack layer after layer. You're not only putting like on the sunscreen, you're also wearing your hat to shade yourself. You're also making sure that you can do, uh, do well without water and, um, all of these things uh, on top give them this like super ability to resurrect and survive there. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah. And then there's also this timing element where they can sort of resurrect in, in sometimes matters of hours. They can start, they can be photosynthesizing almost normally again. And this is again, really important in these desert environments where you get these flash floods and you've got to like yeah. take all the, the, t- the tiny chance of rain that you get and, and go for it. So yeah. Hooray plants. <laughs> Take her message. I think that's 25 facts for the day. Yes. 
Yes. <laughs> not, not necessarily 25 plant fucks. Um, one of them was also about mitochondria being a continuous whole, which I'm not sure was a quality fact, but... <laughs> <laughs> That's nice of you. Like, I've seen your, your looks at me when I presented my facts. It's nice that you pointed out one of your facts and not being great. I just sometimes... Sometimes I feel like you don't like plants, you're... <laughs> like when you're like, okay, this is a plant fact because computers have I like sun. plants. Anyway, um, <laughs> if you want to um, help us to find more facts for the last the last batch of 25 facts to make it to 100 because we're still celebrating our 100th episode, um, tell us your facts on social media, on Twitter, that's at Plants Pipettes. You can tell me facts there to help me not have computer facts next time. On Instagram and sometimes Facebook, it's at Plants and Pipettes. There you're talking to me. And if you learn, want to learn more about plants and plant facts, you can also go to our website, plantsandpipettes.com, uh, where we have lots and lots of stories from the world of plant science, um, some of which you might recognize from the facts we said, but many of them we haven't mentioned on mm -hmm. this podcast yet. So definitely have a look. Yeah, our opening and closing music is Caravana by Philip Gross. And I think that's it. That's yeah, goodbye. goodbye. Woo.